0: Hey, busy. Hey. You know, it feels like we just spoke because Mm -hmm. we did. We've been working hard on our next season of uh, pop culture
1: stuff as well as interviews. Yeah, pop culture stuff around, dads. We are about to enter our third season of Tell Me About Your Father. We're taking August of 2021 off. As you do. As one does. As we record this, I am wearing a caftan. I can see like a swimsuit under that. Uh-huh. I'm recording this in my bathing suit because I just need to get to the pool where I will be for the next 30 days.
0: Just like J-Lo on her yacht in the French Riviera oh. with Ben, her 52 years young ass. I am
1: living for Bennifer. I am juicy living buttocks. for the reunion of the of Juicy Buttocks, <laughs> JLo, lo and Benjamin Affleck. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. No. But.
0: No. We're doing a new intro for our classic show on Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And Matthew Weiner, the creator, showrunner, head writer, got his start on The Sopranos as an early writer and executive producer. One of the shows that we are going to cover this next season and the iconic father role of Tony Soprano, a father in more ways than one. Some might say the godfather. Ooh! But let's talk about what creator showrunner Matthew Weiner is up to now because he is kind of like the Don Draper in real life. That yeah. we kind of expose
1: in our episode. That's right. Yeah. We did a two-parter last year that was one of our more popular episodes about Mad Men that looked both at Don Draper as a protagonist and a father, but also, as you mentioned, the creator of the series and who we've been thinking a lot about lately because we've been re-watching The Sopranos. I'm watching it for the first time, but... Yes. What has he been up to, Aaron? Tell the people at home. After Mad Men, he, as we talk about in this show, he did have some other TV series, right? It was an anthology series,
0: which means sort of interconnected, episodic, you know, like love actually stories on Amazon called The Romanoffs. And it just didn't do well. And it was poorly reviewed. And he put out a novel, which we kind of dissect a little bit with an unfortunate subject matter that is unflattering to him, which Mm -hmm. we'll just encourage you to listen to. Mm -hmm. And he was embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal around the same time. The show ended, it was iconic and won all the awards. And then the writer Cater Gordon came out during sort of like the Me Too time. I think it was in like 2017 when a lot of the first wave of bad men are exposed or men that abuse their power in Hollywood and in other industries. And it was kind of like
1: glossed over Mad Men writer, Cater Gordon, who worked on, what, the first two or three seasons of Mad Men? She wrote an Emmy-winning episode. Which we we talk about, and we play her Emmy acceptance speech, or shall we say Matthew Weiner's Emmy acceptance speech, because he talks on her behalf while she stands next to him yes. um, at the Emmys. We play some of that in this episode. But yeah, she came out during the Me Too first wave to talk about some experiences she had with Matthew Weiner, which, you know, as you mentioned before, the feedback we've heard from a lot of people on the episode we're about to play is that they had no idea that Matthew Weiner had been accused of what he has been accused of. And
0: what's interesting about it to me, besides the parallels of the things he's accused of and... The archetypical characters from the show, Mad Men, who are extremely sexist in the office, kind of uh, treat every woman around them, whether they're a peer in business or not, as their property or objectifying them sexually.
1: Yeah, and then also on top of that, we look at Don Draper as a man, what kind of a dad his dad was, what kind of a father he's been to his three children, and the intricacies and complications around that. And I love this episode because we really go into and tease out with a fine-tooth comb highs and lows in parenting for Don Draper.
0: And particularly his relationship with his oldest daughter sally draper a constant presence in the show and kind of his moral compass Mm -hmm. if you will
1: yeah and to uh quote don draper there's that scene where he's in the elevator with with michael ginsburg the copywriter who goes crazy And, Mm -hmm. and michael ginsburg says to him i feel bad for you or i feel sorry for you and don draper's response is I don't think about you at all, but I think about Don Draper and the show Mad Men, and the so much it's incredible storytelling, and it's look at men so much. I think about it all the time, yeah. and we formative. both we both do formative, and so we present you with the end result of that constant thinking, which is this two parter, and we hope you enjoy it. Also, it is the
0: 14th anniversary <gasps> of i forgot
1: the, i forgot to mention right?
0: that. Re- yes. this very month of july 2021 it has now been 14 years since the show was in our lives which makes me feel old with a capital o baby i know it was like the crash of the market in 2008 when that shit started could that be right yeah, 2008.
1: Although, how is it 14 years? Because I thought, oh yeah, it was 2008. Those are bad years for me. I was unpacking my daddy issues, which we will talk about on this episode. My father and Don Draper had similar behavior yep.
0: patterns, as we will hear. And my dad worked in advertising. Buckle up. Enjoy.
2: See you in September. Yeah. What did your dad look like?
3: Like me, but bigger.
2: What did he like to eat?
3: Ham.
4: This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. On this special two-part episode, Erin and Elizabeth take a look back at seven seasons of Matthew Weiner's iconic TV drama Mad Men set in the 1960s. Listen as they follow the development of Sally Draper and how her relationship with her enigmatic father Don mirrored the relationships they had with their own fathers.
1: Is there a more iconic theme song than that, besides maybe the Cheers theme song? A lot of theme songs
0: get stuck in your head, but Mad Men's is certainly tied to its visuals. Mm. Just like a catchy advertisement, the illustration is of a man falling out of the sky Mm -hmm. from a large skyscraper. And I think a lot of people really expected the series to end with Don's suicide. Jumping out the window
1: or being pushed out of the window. I mean, that would have just been too on the nose. Matt Matt Weiner is a lot of things, but I don't think he would have ended it like that. No, and he did not. And people who wanted it to end like that are stupid. (laughs) Just kidding. Mad
0: Men was a TV drama on AMC from 2007 through 2015. The creator, showrunner, writer, director Matthew Weiner, who had started out on other shows you may have seen The Sopranos mm-hmm. most notably, and it follows the lives of many and many madmen. Many advertising executives at the fictional agency Sterling Cooper, Draper Price. Mm -hmm. It begins in 1960 and takes us through the end of that decade. So every season covers about a year and change. We see the culture through the lens of these characters and how it changes and grows. As was the case at the time, the women were secretaries, Mm -hmm. 90% white. And the men had all the power and were 100% white. The civil rights movement and the advancement of women in the workplace is reflected through that environment, which is to say progress is slow and mostly about its fashion. The African-American experience is not part of the show except to show how racist, sexist, ageist everybody was in this world at this time. Yep. It's kind of interesting, one of the arcs is with Peggy Olson, who starts as a secretary and becomes the first female copywriter at the agency and then even gets promoted by the time the show ends at around 1970. And Pete tells Peggy on the last episode that if she keeps it up, she'll be an art director by 1980. <laughs> <laughs> 11
1: years from now, yeah, you'll be going places. So if she, might, she might get that. So
0: the 60s really were obviously a time of great change in America. You and I sort of relate to these characters as we would our dads. But in real life, our dads would have been Don Draper's daughter, Sally's age.
1: What do we love especially about Mad Men?
0: For me, it's the show that best captures and makes me feel close to my late father, who was an ad man. We watched all 7 seasons again or at least the episodes that most centered on Don being a father. Mm. Don Draper is a an enigma. He is a man introduced to the series and to viewers as a high-powered, young and cocky businessman, powerful, has a girlfriend in the city, smokes a lot of cigarettes, is talking about the Lucky
1: Strike account. Mm -hmm. He visits his bohemian girlfriend in the village. Right. This is the very first episode and you're watching it and you think, this guy. Three
0: martini lunch. Yeah. He has quite the life. Then he goes back to Westchester on the train and you find out (gasps) he's actually a (gasps) A father and and husband with a wife named Betty and
1: kids
0: that he's putting to bed. So we know that he is a liar. Mm. And not necessarily a villain at all.
1: We know that he has a double life for sure. Whether we don't know the extent of the double life, which certainly develops over time, but out of the gates, you know that he's leading two lives, and that his wife probably isn't on to him necessarily, or or consciously on to him. Right, because
0: by episode three, we find out that Don isn't Don Draper; that he is actually someone named
1: Dick, Dick Whitman. Whitman.
0: Hot. I'm His
1: name is literally Dick. Dick. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the show is an English major's dream, really, mm-hmm. I have to say.
0: It's incredibly psychologically astute. There are no accidents in Mad Men, in the writing, in the set design, in the costumes, in the dialogue. There are no
1: false notes. The premise is that he was fighting in the Korean War slash something. Well,
0: his platoon comrade was killed in action.
1: Whose name was Donald Draper.
0: And he takes his dog tags and he takes his personal effects and he makes a deal with the real Don Draper's widow. Please, can I... I need to act as if I am this person. I'm going to assume his identity. I'm not a bad man, but I need to remake my life. Because right. he is escaping a horrific childhood that includes all, all manner of abuse. It is uncovered over time.
1: Over the course of the series, we learn about the reality of where he comes from. And it starts to make sense because pretty early on in the series, you see him switching the dog tags out identities and then very slowly. And Mad Men famously took a lot of time between seasons. It wasn't like they would come back immediately the next year, the next, quote, season. Like, I think there was a full year, two years even between one season or year and a half.
0: Oh, right, because of Matt Weiner's uh, perfectionism.
1: Right, and there was something with AMC, too, where they got into a a fight with them about— they were thinking about leaving AMC at one point, maybe. Right,
0: because Matt Matt Weiner was a fussy diva and needed everything to be his way. Yeah. And because the show was so powerful and beloved and Emmy-winning—
1: He did get his way, but yes, Mm -hmm. there were
0: several standoffs between network and show creator.
1: Yeah, and so you'd be, the viewer at home was um, waiting waiting. to get to 1965.
0: Right, and waiting, waiting,
1: (laughs) waiting for a long time, and so when you watch it, On Netflix now or stream it, you know, it's super tightly done. But like watching his trauma develop over time as a viewer in real time, it's way more nuanced. And you almost forget like what he's been through.
0: He's like, what, 30-ish when the show starts? 32, (sighs) something like that. I know he Uh, turns 40.
1: Yes, he's supposed to be in his mid-30s, I think, when it starts.
0: Betty is his stay-at-home... Wife, mother of his children, a former fashion model mm-hmm. who went to Bryn Mawr, mm-hmm. right? She's still wearing her Dior gowns around the home mm-hmm. that she had in the late 50s, the Dior new look. They live in Ossining, which is very chic suburbs. Mm-hmm. They have a daughter, Sally, who turns six on the third episode, mm-hmm. played by Kiernan Shipka.
1: Yeah, Kiernan Shipka. She's so, so good. One of the best child actresses, of child her, Of a- any actors. generation,
0: so, so, so strong. And then there is a little brother named Bobby who's like two or three or something. Mm-hmm. And one of the running jokes among fans is that They cast a different Bobby in every possible scenario. Bobby doesn't appear a lot, but they
1: use a different actor every time because he just cannot. They had some fits and starts with Bobby, (laughs) and they didn't really... The Bobby that they ended up sticking with, it took him a a few seasons, I want to say. The Bobby it ends with is in the picture until like season four or three. I
0: couldn't pick him out of a lineup. None of these bobbies. The
1: bobbies keep famously getting switched out.
0: And then later, a couple years later, there is another baby Gene, a Mm -hmm. son, who just exists. When, When the show
1: ends, I think he's about four. Yeah. After, like, season three, there's a divorce. Right. And Betty and Don... You immediately see Don's infidelity. Like, the viewer immediately figures out that he's cheating on Betty on the first episode. Right. And then everybody knows it because it's part of the lifestyle. Part of this, this ad man, New York expense account and apartment in the city lifestyle yes. that we're seeing. American secretary.
0: You know, <laughs> everything is done for these men. Mm-hmm. They are coddled. They get to get. Shit faced at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They get to go on airplanes and be in private first class accommodations and smoke on the airplane and mm-hmm. sleep with the stewardesses. <laughs>
1: I feel like there is, in the second season, the Three Sundays episode that we'll talk about later, it starts with them talking about marriage because Pete has just gotten married to his wife, Trudy. and, And the way that they're talking about it is so empty. And, you know, know that you're married now. They're a little more kind of this moral, younger world that are like actually think they're gonna make their marriages work, unlike Don, who and Roger, who are just doing whatever the fuck they want to. Yeah. Um, and then Trudy calls, his wife calls him and asks him what he wants for dinner, and he's feeling very important. Mm-hmm. But at the end of that episode, you see Pete. Who's now having to go home to his wife's have dinner when all of the rest of the like young singles in the office, including Peggy, who he's had this kind of secret tryst with on the side, who ends up with them having a son together that we never necessarily even know that much about besides its existence.
0: Well, she gives the baby away and Don Draper helps her conceal the secret. Right. She um, doesn't want to see him. So that's kind of cool, because the character just secretly has a love child of her boss, not Don, and goes to a hospital, has the child, and then gives it over to be adopted so she can stay in Manhattan and be a career girl. There's no in-between. It literally never comes up again, except as a vehicle for Peggy and Don to trust each other.
3: Peggy, listen to me. Get out of here and move forward. This never happened. It will shock you how much it never happened.
0: And so, the psychological underpinning theme of all the seasons of the show is a man, a human, running from their past, trying to bury their trauma. Trying to escape it by drinking it away, by having sex to forget, by making as much money as possible, by constantly moving forward, Mm. which is something that Don says quite often through right move forward the arc of the series.
1: This never happened. Power through life. (laughs) With all of the coping mechanisms that you just described, which are kind of still the greatest hits of how we cope, even now. It's not a just, this was before people had better therapy. People drink, people have sex, people overwork, people...
0: Smoke cigarettes. People smoke cigarettes. Longingly outside on the
1: <laughs> The various stu- compulsions and isms and whatever you want to call them that we all reach for to not have to deal with
0: we really wanted to focus on Don Draper and his role as a father to particularly his daughter Sally and his mentee Peggy Olson who is the only other female in the cast that he isn't sleeping with and respects besides his daughter Sally
1: that's interesting yeah it's i we definitely honed in on on Sally and Peggy is the two women who kind of know him the best that he really shows himself to you astutely pointed out that they're the two major characters who he doesn't have sex with. I guess he doesn't have sex with Joan but Joan sexuality is sort of it's like a perfume what are those yeah, an atomizer he... <laughs> her sexuality is like <laughs> atomized across the office that's like, Roger's girl it touches everything yeah. it's everywhere it's just like a given
0: well he he is capable of respect women is the point, I think, in a, in the most misogynist of worlds mm-hmm. in an ad agency where men call their secretaries honey
1: and sweetheart
0: and sweetheart and yell at them as if they would their, their mothers or their wives or their daughters.
1: It's funny. I was the editor of Paper Magazine during the time that Mad Men was on and during the height of Mad Men mania and a lot of things that I googled... <laughs> <laughs> for this for this conversation led me to paper links because i was clearly just assigning stories that i was interested in including we did an astrology piece where we did the star charts of both john draper and dick whitman come on yeah so i know from and written by abby Schreiber, who's now the editor of paper shout out to abby she's abby. still there don draper i think is born in 1925 or in he, he that's right Sorry, Dick Whitman is born in 25 or in the mid-20s, mid mid to late 20s, which would have made him technically old enough to be our father's fathers. Right. My dad was
0: born in 47. Mm -hmm. Your dad was born in 49. Yep. So our dads would have been the age of like a Sally older brother.
1: Right. But yet we experience this as someone watching this show. There's so much that the fathers and the parents are doing on that show that my parents would have never dreamed of doing. Mm-hmm. that had like been culturally stamped out by that point. Right. Um, however, I think we both connected over the fact that even though it skips a literal generation, if we're basing it off of character ages versus our dad's ages, yeah, there's still so much to Don that reminds us of our own fathers.
0: I mean my dad was an ad man and although in Cleveland, Ohio, and fabulous. He opened his own agency which was called Azure Blue. Ooh. And I think that was in 1972. So Mad Men ends in on the cusp of 1970, right before that bell-bottom renaissance, and I just thought it was funny that my dad's first account was high-low rolling papers, (laughs) get high on low prices was his first favorite, you know, slogan that he came up with. What a tagline. Get high on low prices. Get high on low prices. But by the time 1980 came around, he was the quintessential ad man where you're wearing a three-piece suit to the office and carrying a briefcase Mm -hmm. and shaving close to the face. Mm -hmm. Like, no more funky mustaches or long hair and your dad was a was a newspaperman my dad was
1: a newspaperman exactly he was a writer for the newspaper and he started in Iowa and then my parents moved to Arizona when my sister was about two and the late or maybe if she was old she was younger than that they moved to Phoenix in the late 70s and he started working at the paper there and he worked there until he died in 2018, April of 2018. So he had a 40-year career there. Yeah. Did you see your dad having to sort of shift along with the times because he worked in advertising to, like, know what was cool? And Absolutely.
0: I mean, he, because he was an ad man, to me, that meant that he was all-knowing because he created commercials. Yeah. And commercials, especially back in the days when you had a little box television and four channels was god to me mm-hmm. and that my father could produce a commercial he talked about producing and meeting Mr. T once. What? Or Mary Lou Retton, who he worked on, you know, like a Revco commercial with, was just like, holy shit, I gotta get to New York. And also just the lifestyle of he had a secretary. Oof, and chic. It was chic. Mm -hmm. I wanted to grow up to be my father's secretary because I found that they had the best fashions interesting on television and in real life those heady times when your dad take your daughter to work day (laughs) did you did you go to your dad's office
1: yes we went to my dad's office we we was he so proud of you
0: like showing you around or was he more like don't get in the way Probably both.
1: My dad was a total softie. When it came to my sister and I, at work, he played the role of the sort of like cantankerous newspaper reporter who was tough on his staff. He worked his way up. He was a city editor and worked basically all the desks there were at the newspaper when I was a kid. And then he would always have like a few younger reporters who reported to him that he would, you know, I would hear him yelling at them on the phone. I remember vividly really eating breakfast with him one morning and i want to (laughs) say it was valentine's day Cause I remember that we were sitting together and he had kind of stayed to drive me to school and it was like a special. My parents would put out little presents for us in the morning on Valentine's Day. It was just like a card or some little like yeah. thing or whatever. Yeah. So he was reading the paper and he was so pissed because he found you know either a headline that he didn't like. It was something that had to do with Mike Tyson and he called the paper and he chewed out whoever answered the phone and was and told me before he did it. Honey, cover your ears. (laughs) And you were like, giddy up. And I was like, let's do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was chaos at the newsroom and it was like everything you saw in the movies with clicking computers and everybody had PCs and sort of like, or maybe, I don't think they were doing anything on typewriters then, but very important and cool. And my dad seemed like a big deal there. So it was thrilling to go there. But at the same time, I also had the feeling that you see also on Mad Men, which is sort of fraternity-esque. There were certainly a lot of women working there, but I remember when... And he would take us in, either he would do it or some young, cool person would like show my sister and I around. And there was always, Oh, don't look at that. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> but oh, you didn't see, you know, the that the word right, the topless the... calendar, <laughs> yeah. you know, somebody is a fucking idiot written on the wall right, or pencils. Swearing. Pencils thrown into the drop ceiling, you know, yeah. this and that. But yeah, it was so exciting to go. And when you saw your dad's secretary secretaries in the office, I mean you mentioned you wanted to be his secretary. Were you yeah. like that is that's the career
0: yeah, I mean, my that mom, I see myself doing? My mom was literally a homemaker. Yeah. Like that's what she would refer to herself as and wasn't able to like go on to get work of her own until I was like late teens. So I just automatically equated her lifestyle as loser. Mm -hmm. Like I knew I wanted to work and I knew I wanted to be like my dad because I wanted respect and I wanted fame and power and to get to be the one to make the decisions, which is a line that Peggy says to the man she's having an extramarital affair with on his end when he won't leave his wife for her.
3: Someday you'll be glad I made this decision. Well, are you lucky to have decisions?
0: He's like, this is the best decision for me. But it's like women couldn't make decisions. Right, women
1: had no options, really.
0: So it was that and the fact that I wanted to wear silk blouses, like Mm -hmm. Maddie on Moonlighting. Oh, yeah. So there's that. There's that superficial kind of connection to him. How else were our dads like Dawn? Um... advertising is lying for a living just like being a novelist or he used to talk about the ad campaigns that he was working on and how frustrating it was because the clients didn't know what they wanted or they thought they did but they were wrong Mm
1: -hmm. and how
0: this job of advertising don't do what I've done if you have talent don't work in advertising and I knew that he was a good writer because he got paid to write happy or to come up with concepts that appealed to the masses, but he didn't believe in any of these products. Like Mm -hmm. he always, he, ha- he still maintained that part of himself, I guess, that had some kind of semblance of authenticity and self-respect, like this is not art mm-hmm. that I'm making. Although I sort of see a lot of advertising as art. Totally. In the way that it does reflect, you know, the whole Warhol thing. But he also was lying to his family and to himself about who he was and his own fallibility He was prone to rages and just was very moody. And while he didn't drink to excess a lot into my memory, he used marijuana secretly as a way to control his moods and so was either stoned for all of my childhood or really angry because he wasn't stoned Mm. in that moment so there's a lot of scenes throughout the show where don is drunk and avoiding his family and running away from responsibility or generally checked out or so drunk he's in a good mood and that's when he's able to express his love better And I really related to that shit.
1: Same. Hard same. I mean, my dad did struggle with alcoholism his whole life. I think... I'm really lucky that he wasn't someone who was abusive. Yes, he did call his staff and scream at them on the phone, but it sticks out to me because that's not something that happened all the time. Yeah. But he never really, you know, was a tough dad on us in in that sense. Like, he wasn't a yeller. We didn't get hit. You know, we were actually very supported and encouraged, my sister and I. But the hard thing about reckoning with all of that, like his good dadness is how much alcoholism is intertwined in it, especially towards the end of his life. It really started to overtake him. But, you know, I started to notice it when I was about 12 and I think about that from time to time, whether or not it got bad and then I noticed it or if it was always, you know, a thing. And I just got to an age where I was like, oh, that person's drunk.
0: Which is the story with Sally,
1: right? So
0: from age six to thirteen, going on fourteen—let's call it fourteen—cause damn, she's she's old. Uh, she, for her age. She's an old soul. She's an um, old soul. Poor baby. That is what she is trying to figure out: what is real, <laughs> who are men, who are parents, mm-hmm. what is life, and she takes on that role to constantly question
1: authority. I think one of the reasons why both of us wanted to talk about it specifically for the show is that I so, so relate to her character at like yeah. 13, 14, to see her sort of reckoning with it at the age that I was also reckoning with it. And I think you were also in that age range of coming into what is this, the fallibilities of not only adults but of men and of a man that she has had on a pedestal her whole life yeah. You know? she's definitely seen the cracks but it's it's awfully familiar i think so many people out there yeah experience a similar sort of realizations about their parents and in, in these eight time frames to see it shown on television so beautifully yeah, it's still, I,
0: you rewatch these
1: episodes and it, it's it, so
0: moving still. It will be forever. And that is why
1: it's so brilliant that it is a period piece. I think people are always going to have the same struggles with like facing who they are and facing their weaknesses, Absolutely. whether or not it's set now or a hundred years ago.
0: It's hard to see yourself. You need to have, you need to do it through the other people around you. Mm-hmm. And Sally is his mirror.
1: Let's get into it a little bit with with Don as a dad.
0: Don in many ways is a is a really good dad
1: mm-hmm. in my
0: mind because he refuses to hit his children. Yeah. <laughs> There's one episode in particular wherein Betty after a long day at home with the kids, Don's been away at the office and now he's back home for dinner, and she is in a mood. Bobby does something to annoy her. He spills milk at the table, and Betty's like, Don, do something! And Don is not the hitting type, so he takes Bobby's toy robot and smashes it into Mm -hmm. the wall, Mm -hmm. scaring everybody. And then Don runs up the stairs with Betty going after him while Sally and Bobby sit at the bottom of the stairs and listen to their parents argue. That's it? I said to him, wait
2: till your father gets home, and that's what he gets. Go to sleep.
3: He knows he did something wrong.
2: First the shenanigans with the washing machine, and now the record player. Don, you have to do something. He needs a spanking.
1: How else is he going to learn the difference between right and wrong?
3: That's not the way it works.
1: You think you'd be the man you are today if your father didn't hit you? What's Betty's reaction in that moment? She. She pushes him. She pushes him she back? She
0: pushes him physically, in her, like by the shoulders. Mm-hmm. And he pushes her back to show her, don't fuck with me. hmm Because I do have all that rage. I just choose not to hit. And then we learn it's because, at the same time, Betty apparently learns that her husband was horribly abused by both his mother and father.
2: How about you're going to help raise these children? not be one.
3: Bets, you do whatever you want.
2: It's not about what I do.
3: He's a little kid. My father beat the hell out of me. All it did was make me fantasize about the day I could murder him. I didn't know that. And I wasn't half as good as Bobby.
0: It's a fascinating scene because it shows the mores of the day where you got to keep that kid in line and that a father's ability to do so is wrapped up in how sexually attractive he is to his wife sometimes in that moment
1: yeah and that's that shoving scene January Jones but she's so good in this role and when he pushes her back she's sort of shocked. But she's also sort of enticed. Yeah. It's a weird exchange. Earlier in that episode, which is called Three Sundays, Don comes home from work and Betty is like, Bobby's been really bad today. He broke the hi-fi. And what I love about- Which is a record player. Which is a record player slash radio, I think. Yeah. And Betty's kind of waiting like, oh, let's see it. Let's see what happens. Don's going to go into his room and yell at him, really give it to him. And he just walks in, he opens the door and he. He says
3: mommy says you broke the hi-fi i believe her don't do that again
1: i won't <laughs> that's it effective it's effective but what i love about what i love about that exchange is that he calls buddy mommy like I think there's a lot of instances where Don refers to himself to his children as daddy and to to Betty as mommy it's not your mother and it's not in a creepy like they call each other mom and dad in front of their like did you ever grow up with people whose parents did that I hate that so creepy yeah but there's something really tender and and I think sweet about the fact that he knows that he's talking to a little boy and he says mommy in that moment I think it's really
0: nice yeah there's so many intuitive human moments when he's parenting that i think betty lacks which is what saves him from being a bad father to
1: being a good father right the other thing about three sundays with bobby is that after don throws the robot and he and betty get into the shoving match don's sitting in the room collecting himself and bobby comes into the room and it's this really incredible scene because it's so moving
3: dads get mad sometimes
1: Did your daddy
2: get mad? He did. What did your daddy look like?
3: Like me, but bigger.
2: What did he like to eat?
3: Ham. And this candy. It tasted like violets. In a beautiful purple and silver package. What did he do? I told you, he was a farmer.
2: But he died.
3: A long time ago.
1: You have to get you and the daddy. The little boy that plays Bobby in that scene is so good. I mean, he only, he disappeared after that episode yeah, or that season. Never, never
0: see that version of Bobby <laughs>
1: never again. Never see that Bobby no, do we again. need to. But it's such a good exchange. I think it, it hits in also to like, you know, so many people grow up not knowing their grandparents, not knowing their parents, but also not knowing their grandparents and the mystery around what was your dad like and telling him that we have to get you a new daddy. It's such a, a sweet, I wrote transcendent sadness in my notes Yeah, because I think it's also a signal to the viewer that Bobby knows that Don is important to him. He knows that he likes having his own daddy and he wants his father to have a daddy.
0: Well, kids that young are generally not empathic. Some children are. Mm-hmm. And Bobby clearly was in that moment when he asks his own daddy about his daddy. It's incredibly tender and sweet. And, and we we'll get play. audio of John Ham saying, Ham. Ham. John Ham. <laughs>
1: You talk a lot in your book about being hit growing up by both your dad and by people who weren't your parents and that that was something that was sanctioned. That was my experience was like
0: anyone can hit you if you're misbehaving as long as they're adults. Like when I was six and
1: the... The lady from the church babysat me to keep me in line. And that's something that you see in this episode in the first season with Sally's birthday party. <laughs> We're done. Supposed to go out and get a cake for her. Yeah. And he disappears. And earlier in the episode, he's shooting people at the party with a Super 8 camera.
0: Yes. And he sees... Or there's one scene where one of the kids at the birthday party, who we can imply is six years old, is running through the house, which is full of adults having cocktails, Mm -hmm. and bumps into one of the dads, or one of the grown-ups who's who's, not his father. Who's not his father, and that man grabs him by the lapel and slaps him across the face Mm -hmm. and says, stop it. Mm -hmm. Reprimands him just for being there.
1: Right. He knocks something
0: over, I think. And then the kid's dad comes into frame and says,
1: You want some more. Right. Yeah. Doesn't he say that? He does. The exchange is is really upsetting because you watch it and you think like, oh, you wonder what the child's actual father is. It's Yeah, you don't know. His father is Carl. This is um their neighbor Francine. She's like a busybody and also like always kind of checking Dawn out, which is funny. And her husband is this sort of toad named Carlton, and they have a son named Ernie. And Ernie's the little boy in the scene that gets slapped. So you think that Carlton is going to step in maybe yeah. and say, don't hit my kid, but that's but not what happens. It's the
0: opposite. And that was the message when I was a kid in the 80s too Your body is not your own. If you mess up, you will be punished. And any adult can be the punisher. And my dad was also really fond of the phrase, you want some more? You know, you want me to give you something to really cry about? Like after you've already been punished, it's like you're not, you have to form the stiff upper lip. Mm -hmm. Do you
1: remember him? Because you have two little brothers. yeah. What is the age difference between you and your brothers? And was he, like, quote, rougher with them because they were boys? Or was it equal opportunity?
0: Like Sally, I was the oldest Mm -hmm. with two younger brothers with five and seven years between us. So I like to think that I got the brunt of the child-rearing fuck-ups. But they also were punished. But I think I came along so much earlier than... They did. And it definitely wasn't gender specific. Yeah. I don't think. I think it was more about just like a loss of temper mm-hmm. in the moment. So I can relate more than to that guy's neighbor than Don in that moment.
1: I watched that scene last night, so it sticks out to me, but Carlton, the grand scene's creepy husband, who's the boy's father, is like, you want some more? And the guy who hits him is like, no, that's okay. We can back off now. Thanks. But also, and I can't remember the dialogue, is he makes some reference to having fought in the war, too. Something about... Interesting. Germans. Um. Something about Germans <laughs> it's by Judy Bloom. By, by something about Germans <laughs> by Judy Bloom. It's one of those quick kind of scenes where you immediately know, watching it, this guy is a vet. He yeah. has darkness in him. He's seen combat. He yeah. has his own shit. That's why he's hitting a child. The reactionary, I'm not in control of my own reflexes. Yes. They would call it reflexes. Being out of control.
0: The whole episode in those moments of birthday party are about mirroring and about Mm. children mirroring their parents. And there's like a funny bit of dialogue that you kind of have to be listening for when all the kids, Sally and her friends are outside playing and one of the is overheard saying I don't like your tone to the other right. and it's just like perfect. They're playing
1: house. And it's the 60s house. and that's how adults talk.
5: <laughs> you entered the car. I like sleeping on the couch. I don't like your tone. Take your shoes off.
1: Like, it's very genius. It's very much like absorbed dialogue from their homes. Yeah. And in that episode, too, the Sally birthday party, it is a moment of good father dash complicated exclamation point. I'll say. <laughs> that's what that's what, my dad no, that's what my notes are.
0: He's supposed to go get a cake.
1: Don is supposed to pick up the birthday cake.
0: That's right. the one job he has so for the episode.
1: All of the kids are at the house. Betty
0: is stressed. Don goes to get a birthday cake and never comes back to his daughter's birthday.
1: Which, like, just thinking about the reality, Of that is insane. You send your husband out to pick up the cake. A cliche. It's like the man who goes out for cigarettes and never comes home. Right. But he actually comes home. He
0: does come home. We see him literally at a crossroads at the railroad track crossing. He's waiting in his car. Mm -hmm. We can tell he's been drinking. He's smoking in the car. And there's a cake sitting next to him. But then it cuts to a scene of Betty, every Everyone is long gone. She's washing dishes with her Playtex gloves on. With her dishwashing gloves on. And her hands are shaking mm-hmm. in anxiety and burgeoning rage. Mm-hmm. And she she's simmering. With, she's smoking with those gloves on. Yep. And suddenly, Daddy Don comes home with a full-grown family dog with a collar on it. It's a golden retriever that he has clearly stolen from someone's (laughs) yard. Although it is never acknowledged. Nobody asks about it.
1: The dog does appear again. But it just, he stole somebody's dog. You pointed this out to me yesterday when we were going through our notes for the show. And I never... I remember noticing and it's like the times that I've watched that episode over the years been like oh he didn't get her a puppy he got her a grown dog that's yeah. that's as far as my mind went in that moment but you're so right why yeah. <laughs> where did he get a completely full and grown golden earlier
5: retriever earlier
0: in that episode in another thread with another character
1: Don is having an affair with a new woman Rachel Menken <laughs> the owner of a department she's the daughter of the owner of a department store right right and like they're he- gonna his he- agents he's going to help.
0: He's married and she's the one he can't have, but there's this attraction. She doesn't even know he's married yet and they share this kiss and a moment on the roof and she tells him her life story about how all a girl needs is a dog that she can rely on because she has dogs in her life, let's just say. And if you weren't paying close attention, you wouldn't realize that that was an allusion to that earlier scene, the fact that he gives his
1: six-year-old daughter a dog to replace himself. Right. Yeah, Rachel Menken says something like, a dog is all a little girl needs in her life. I think talking about do- the dogs, too, like I love the birthday party episode because I it kind of hits into, too, like, one of the things we've thought about with this, doing this podcast, but also people that I've told about our podcast, they're like, well, what about moms? Like, dads are always... Yeah the heroes and I feel like they are these maddening mysterious figures in our lives Don could disappear in Sally's childhood memory. The reality is that he disappeared for several hours and left Betty hanging and she didn't know where he was Mm -hmm. but Sally's memory is going to be that he showed up with a dog and that that was the best birthday she ever had Amen. (laughs) and right. dads often get to swoop in and do those things and be the good cops but dogs appear later on in the form of Chauncey, the Irish setter who belongs to Duck. That's in the episode "Made in Form," where they get made in form as a in season two. In season two, yep. Made in form, the bra, the bra brand duck who is an ad exec there
0: and a recovering alcoholic and a recovering alcoholic
1: sober someone who's gotten sober his wife comes to drop their children off for the weekend with him that episode resonates a lot with me because when he sees Chauncey Chauncey's this fairy he's an Irish setter which is like a don't know a giant giant dog a giant dog On Madison Avenue yeah I mean it's definitely a fancy people dog but also you would see like an Irish setter I don't know, hunting or like yeah, maybe like something like that. Yeah, like a Totally. A uh, hunter green. And it's, a, it's a hunter. It's the hunter green of dogs. Plaid. An Irish setter is the hunter green of dogs. So,
0: yeah. It sits on a plaid sofa and it's not allowed.
1: Exactly. Chauncey resonated with me because my family grew up with a standard poodle that was completely incongruous to who we were as a family. We were very middle class. We were messy. We didn't have nice things. We weren't poor, but we weren't rich. And we had this totally... It was a fancy dog. It was a fancy dog. My parents got him from a breeder, and they got a deal on him because he came with a hernia. And so my parents, he was discounted. We agreed to have it corrected, and so they got him for a discount. Anyway, it was always funny to see my dad with Louie, our standard poodle, because when he would get groomed, they would give him the traditional poodle cut, and he would always have like ribbons in his hair, and my dad would immediately take them out and be like, God damn it. Yeah. And get upset about the sort of feminization of this very... A show dog. A show. So there's this scene when Chauncey comes running into the office Doug greets him and says, you smell like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> when he hugs him, and the i the hair like, is so oh glossy
0: and red and long.
1: It just, we can, yeah. It's like if Joan were a dog. Like a- so tell the people what happened. Oh god. So Chauncey ties in so beautifully to the sadness of divorce in the world of Mad Men in, in general. Chauncey it turns out is there with the kids and Duck clearly really loves this dog and the dog loves him and the kids reveal to him in like a sort of like tense exchange that their mother is getting remarried and the reason that the dog is with them is that she wants Duck to take the dog it's a good scene in that the guy who plays Duck does a good job of just sort of like, just letting it slide off of him. He's clearly stricken, but he just kind of keeps the conversation going. But you see that he's totally heartbroken. And he's in the office alone. Very few people are there. He's a recovering alcoholic. He goes into an office. He's holding a bottle of bourbon or, or something. He's about to take a drink of it. And it cuts to him looking at the dog and the dog looking at him. And he can't do it. He puts the bottle down. And you're watching it. And you're like, that's a little cheesy. Like, yeah. you know, like, oh, I can't do it. Um, While well, my dog watches me, I'm too ashamed. But, you know, it being Mad Men. What does he do? He takes Chauncey down to the lobby and he releases him into Midtown. And he turns around and he walks back into the office, fighting back tears. He never stops to look back at Chauncey, who's standing there confused. And then, but the camera off. does because Chauncey barks. Chauncey like. barks like, "What are you doing?" And then he and then he glides off into the night into the Midtown. The idea
0: of a silky redheaded, oversized adult dog, a baby. Abandoned on Madison Avenue mm-hmm. in 1962. I know. It's shattering. It's shattering
1: and the fact that, <laughs> you even see, but that you see Doug walking back and trying not to cry. And then after that, his character relapses and starts drinking again. But Chauncey is, I think, a fascinating It's a good example of the subtle ways that divorce affects family down to dogs. Um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Not, not, how, it affect, not how it affected Chauncey but like how like animals are dealt with once a family breaks up like who gets the dog I remember yeah. was like kind of a thing it's
0: everything like, my is parents property right. splitting.
1: yeah my parents got divorced when I was 15 but there was never any question that my mom had similar to what you were saying before my mom yeah. had custody of me and the dog stayed with us even though he really had a bond with my dad I mean he had a bond yeah. with both of my parents but he had a strong bond with my father. In the same
0: episode, Maidenform, there are a couple of scenes involving mirrors where one of the characters will look himself in the mirror, and it ends with Don looking at himself at the mirror, but earlier in the same episode, it's Pete who is <laughs> a newlywed but will continue his philandering because he needs to in order to feed his ego. He has a quickie affair with a maiden form model, and there's a scene where he looks at himself in the mirror post-coital. Mm-hmm. And he feeling very spiffy mm-hmm. about it. And the camera kind of lingers on him. He smirks at he himself. Smirks, smirking at himself. And in the same episode, Across Town, in what I like to think is the Pierre Hotel, mm. <laughs> he has hate sex with this woman that he's having an affair with. And she is tra- she is talking about his reputation around the office for being a player and being great in bed. Mm-hmm. And it triggers a memory for him of being basically molested as a child. He grew up in a whorehouse by one of the prostitutes, and it is needling at him because he has issues with what we would call hypersexuality, like compulsive sex. He cannot not do it. But he's angry at this woman and he wants her to shut the fuck up. So he ties her to a bed and leaves the hotel. Leaves her tied up. And then he goes home and he's sick. What does he say to her when he leaves, So I told you to stop talking. And then he walks out. And he walks out and then he goes home and soon after he is cleaning himself up because he still smells like sex and he's still... <laughs> it's the next morning. Is it the next morning? But I remember him being hungover and he's just a in a really shitty mood and he's shaving the next morning contemplating his image in the mirror and sally sneaks in and does that cute little daughter thing that i think all little girls remember doing if their dad had facial hair which is perching on the toilet or next to the sink and watching daddy shave and she says i won't say a word i don't want you to cut yourself So he is getting what he wanted all along, which is silence from a girl for the first time. And at the same time, he's acknowledging that looking himself in the mirror is disgusting to himself.
1: It's a really crazy exchange. Sally's looking at him adoringly. And she says, I won't say anything, Daddy. And then he starts disassociating. And she's like, are you okay?" And he tells her to leave and sits down.
5: I'm not gonna talk. I don't want you to cut yourself. Are you okay, Daddy?
3: You know, Sally, I think you better leave me alone.
4: End of part one. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at T-M-A-Y-F podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donohue. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Betsy Lerner, Ann Thompson, Paige Orvis,
3: and Helen Belgum.
2: You make me sick!
3: Sally, come back here. Sally. Open the door.
2: No. You don't get to talk to me anymore.
4: This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. On this episode, Erin and Elizabeth continue their look back at father figures in the TV drama Mad Men, focusing on Sally Draper's coming of age and increasing awareness of her father's secret lives. They also discuss showrunner Matthew Weiner's own daddy issues and the scandal that will change the way you think about the show forever.
0: Last we saw Don, he was asking Sally to be left alone. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happens. He goes off in season three, lives his life, continues his philandering. And what's relevant for Sally in this season is that Betty's dad, whose name is Gene, has a stroke and so comes to the house to live with them for a while. And there's a three or four episode arc where Sally has a friend in her grandpa, Gene. And then he dies pretty suddenly And she faces loss for the first time.
1: Right after Betty's dad has died, they've had another baby.
0: Yes, they've had another baby named after Betty's dad, Grandpa Gene. So this is Baby Gene. And Sally, who was very close to Grandpa Gene, hates Baby Gene. Does not want to hold that damn Baby Gene. Does not want to hear it cry. Doesn't want her parents to pay attention to it. And has been having... Reoccurring nightmares that baby Jean is Grandpa Jean mm. reincarnated, mm-hmm. which makes total sense. And Don is the only one that kind of gets that and comforts her instead of Betty's reaction, which is, I just don't know what to say. I don't know why she's
1: crying in the middle of the night. Right, yeah. Dawn comes home and finds Sally's Barbie doll in the bushes and brings it back upstairs and puts it in her room while she's asleep and she wakes up and sees the doll on her her nightstand thinking, I left that outside. What's it doing here? And has a complete freak out. Betty is so exasperated in that moment with her. She can't figure it out. That doll, by the way, is given to her as like a consolation i've tried giving her a doll i've tried giving her extra attention but you really see the way that don connects with his daughter emotionally differently than betty
3: calm down and tell me what's going on
1: grandpa
2: gene he's not supposed to be here anymore he's not he's called gene he sleeps in his room he looks just like him and i bet when he starts talking he's gonna sound just like him too
3: He's a baby. That's it.
0: And he gets her a nightlight. He gets her like a Like, it's, a, it's an easy fix. Yeah. Just explain death or try to yes. and say that it's okay to be scared. He eventually coaxes Sally into holding or at least agreeing to look at baby Jean as Don holds baby Jean. You're the younger sibling in your family. Did you witness, like, your dad being tender with the baby or any baby? Yeah. I, <laughs> My dad was tender with babies he, sometimes. I remember,
1: I have a really clear memory of someone at church having a baby and... And him pointing out to me that the baby's ears looked like little seashells. <laughs> oh my god, that's, that's a, adorable. It was like, oh, well, look at his little seashell ears. And I was like, what? Did your dad <laughs> actually like do any diaper changing? Oh yeah, my dad was a very vi- extremely involved parent. Good. I mean, my mom. My was m- your mom working? Yes. Yeah, she okay. worked. My mom worked for a publishing company, and my father rearranged his schedule when we were little. I think when we were really little, he worked the graveyard shift at the newsroom so that. When we were getting ready for school, he was home to help us. That's progressive.
0: Super progressive. How long were your parents married
1: before they divorced? Almost thirty years. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah mine the, twenty. They got married when they were twenty one mm-hmm. and they got divorced in ninety nine. So yeah, it was almost thirty years. They met when they were nineteen. As the older sibling, when you saw your dad, when do you remember when your little brothers came well, home or like we're brother, new babies?
0: Like I tried to hold my brother or they wanted me to for a picture and I had no interest because totally. I was five at this right little shit was just like ugh, seriously <laughs> I have to share and there's a great picture of myself holding my brother as an infant. I just look like he shit his pants, which he probably had because he's he was a baby, but I was just like, and my dad was very amused by that and it was a relatable scene. I think they get it. I suspect he did this with all of us, which was private little talks like you know, you'll always be the only girl. You'll yeah. always be the old Oldest. Maybe he said to my other brother, like,
1: you'll always be the youngest. Right. You know, who knows? The special but- little, I felt this special. is how you're special to me. Yeah. It is important. I think there's a moment in your book that's really funny where I don't relate to it, goddammit, as the youngest fucking older siblings out there. You think no. you're so great. I'm looking at you, Maddie, my older sister. But you write so humorously and vividly about your disdain for your little brothers who were very cute, including one of your brothers who's obsessed with Mickey Mouse and says yeah. says cute things about Mickey Mouse.
0: Yeah, I'm not goofy, I'm Mickey. (laughs) Like when my mom would say... Stop being so goofy.
1: Now he was a real card. But I just love it. even, you know, you wrote this book. How old were you when you wrote it?
0: Oh, uh, so like 35. So at 35, <laughs> you're like, God
1: damn it. It's like this but baby. This, the simmering disdain. Yeah. But at the end of that episode with Don and baby Jean, he has Sally come over to him, and she doesn't want to. And he's like, come over here. He's just, she's scared of him
3: still. This is your little brother. But he's only a baby and we don't know who he is yet but who he's going to be and that's a wonderful thing
1: don gives her a speech about how gene is just a baby and that we don't know what kind of a person gene is going to be and that that's a beautiful thing and let's hope that he doesn't turn out like, like, like me. me. Old
0: man, look at my life. I'm a lie I, lie like you, burning
1: and now, new young <laughs> too. I only
3: ever wanted to be the man who loves children, <laughs> but from the moment they're born, that baby comes out, and you act proud and excited, and hand out cigars, but you don't feel anything especially if you had a difficult childhood. You want to love them, but you don't. And the fact that you're faking that feeling makes you wonder if your own father had the same problem. And one day they get older, and you see them do something, and you feel that feeling that you were pretending to have. And it feels like your heart is going to explode.
1: The reality of what he's saying is essentially your heart doesn't start opening up for your children until they, quote, do something. I don't have kids people that I'm close to in my life who do have said to me, it's not something you're going to hear a lot, but typically you don't start having those real moments of connection until they're older. You just don't. And Don is confronting
0: himself and his own inability to connect with himself around being a father, being a man, being a husband, Mm -hmm. being alive.
1: The other thing that we see in season three is... The cracks in the Draper marriage really starting to show, and for the first time, you see Betty, even though she's had maybe her suspicions here and there, truly realize that Don is having an affair, and... What basically leads to them getting a divorce?
0: So now post-divorce, Don is now a single dad who lives in an apartment. Right. Sally has had it with Betty, and she goes to the city. She fights her way onto the train. She lies, and she takes a train into the city by herself. I think she's eight and she basically goes to the office and won't leave. Remember the part where Don's assistant, Ms. Blankenship, dies suddenly
1: at her desk. She does. And they have to hide it, both from Sally but from the clients. You see them like trying to figure out what to do with her body while like <laughs> the clients' backs are too And while Don well finishes yeah. a
0: pitch. Right. A pitch meeting. And ends up landing the count. They're There's a lot of comedy, but in the end, Don is like, Sally, you have to go home. You have to leave. There's no woman in this office that can take care of you, and I don't have time to take care of you right now. And she gets so upset, she starts running toward the... Receptions down this long hallway and she wipes out.
1: Mm-hmm. She
0: just falls on her face and her knees and Megan, one of the secretaries, soon to be her stepmother in the next season. She doesn't know it yet. Don's next wife is one of his secretaries because he needs somebody to be a nanny basically. Not that he doesn't think he loves Megan with her go-go boots and
1: her butt Zuby,
0: Her
1: go-go boots and her buck teeth. It's overbite. Is she from Montreal? French
0: Canadian. When we saw this show 10 years ago, didn't like Megan and found her to be meh. But in the rewatch, I found Megan to be
1: enormously sensitive and trying to be a good stepmother. Sensitive to the wounds of her stepchildren mm-hmm. and what they're going through. Not that much time has gone by, but I have a totally different view of Megan watching it now. I
0: wonder how old Megan was. She was probably in her, like, maybe 24. 20s. yeah. I think
1: she's supposed to be mid-20s. But that moment that she helps Sally off the floor is mm-hmm. it's a kernel for Dawn I've seen. How good she is with Sally, because this is framed against Faye, his girlfriend at the time, his who girlfriend. is the the in-house
0: agency psychologist. Right, and psychologists are always part of ad agency worlds because they know what the consumer needs. And so they're on staff. That was one of the early high-paying, high-seniority
1: roles for women. Don's kind of, at this point in his life, he's started journaling. He's trying to drink less. He starts swimming. And he starts dating this woman, Faye, the psychologist, who he really makes an effort to take the relationship seriously. He doesn't have sex with her on the first date, which is a huge win for him in the terms of, like, emotional maturity. He's trying not to fuck it up. She has no connection connection to children and she has and no she connection says that. and she says to him like I chose to have a career instead of children and
0: and he's like it's fine it's fine but it's, but not, it's fine. not fine because within just a few episodes he's and by the next season opener he is married
1: to right Faye has been dismissed and Megan has been promoted promoted <laughs> But that episode where she falls, beautiful girls, is again a moment of good parenting on Dawn's part framed against Betty's where when Don calls Betty and is like, do you realize that Sally's taking the train here? She's like, I can't come get her till tomorrow, so enjoy Don. And like you know, saying it out loud now, I'm like, maybe Betty's fucking tired of yeah. being stuck at home and she's like, you know what, you take her for a couple nights. I've had it with her. You understand her frustration in that moment. And but that's what
0: divorce is. It's figuring out the distribution of labor. Yeah, it's your turn, which is
1: frankly a she's big She's a living parenting. thing.
0: Chauncey was a living thing. Yeah it
1: is your turn Don. Like you would quote deal with. You made your bed now lie in it and take care <laughs> of it. But I think the sad part is that then you see Sally really resisting wanting to go home and saying I hate it there. She feels trapped.
0: So when she does get to spend the night yeah. at her dad's place at his apartment at the time when he's a a swinging bachelor. Right. Swingin' dick. Whitman. So, secretly, so. he's drinking a lot,
1: more even than one thought possible. And he was. He's trying right now to be a better guy.
0: But Sally intuits. His drinking and totally. how important alcohol is in his happiness. Mm-hmm. So there's an amazing scene where he wakes up and she has made him French toast, and instead of Mrs. Butterworth's, it turns out to be rum.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, he kind of chastises her, and he's like, "What is this?" And she's like, "In her Sally list, it's Mrs. Butterworth," and he says, "It's rum. Learn how to read labels." He's like, "This." actually tastes pretty good honey it's this moment of connection and then she asks Don to put off his work for the day and he
0: takes her to the zoo they go to the zoo together
1: so it's post-divorce Don is attempting to be a good dad to his kids and to Sally post-divorce it's just a quick little moment in an episode called hands and knees but he gets Sally's Beatles tickets yes any dad who gets his kid concert tickets,
0: Beatles anything, is a thoughtful dad. And her reaction is spot on. She actually has Beatlemania and starts screaming. And even Betty is impressed. And he's always such a thoughtful dad gift giver. One of the things that struck me is that Sally's wardrobe throughout the series is extremely consistent. At some point, somebody, and I think we assume that it's Don, gives her a Tiffany necklace with her initials. It's a classic, the monogram, S, B, D, Sally Beth Draper, which she caresses as Don is on the other side of that door in a scene that we'll talk about oh. soon when he betrays her with his humanity.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point about that necklace. You see it, the episode before the Beatles episode is when she makes him French toast with rum.
2: That's before
1: and the Beatles it It's one episode before. In that episode, he puts her to bed and she has her little necklace on. And he's wearing one of his t-shirts as a nightgown. Which everyone we've, you know remembers. We've, we've all, all been the there. T-shirt nightgown. I still have my dad's T-shirts. I have them. I can't go there quite yet. They're still yeah. in a box. There's also the act of wearing a T-shirt to bed, which I do all the time as pajamas. But you, you wear your dad's shirts growing up as a little girl, and they're huge on you. But then when you become older and you sleep over at men's houses, they're you like, "Do their you t-shirts. want a T-shirt?" And then you're also in their T-shirt, and it's this no. weird moment of. You feel... I feel like a little kid. Yeah.
0: And because you're, you're swimming in their t-shirts, their t-shirts cover your entire buttocks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Going off of what you just mentioned about her necklace and how they dress Sally and they do such a good job of using clothes with Sally, there's the episode at the, at the Cod Codfish, Codfish Ball. Ball, which we famously remember as the episode where she walks in on Roger getting a blowjob. However, there's a lot in this episode about how she dresses and Dawn's sort of reaction to her.
0: Don is being honored by the American Cancer Society for an ad campaign that he has uh, orchestrated. So it's one of those, like, we're all going to the ball at the Hilton. And Sally gets to go as his date. She's Roger's date.
1: Oh, sorry. She's Roger's date? So Megan's parents come to town and her father, who's Mm -hmm. a Marxist scholar. Sure. And her, as one is. And a French mother. Her French mother who's annoyed by her father. He's a struggling academic who can't get anything published and is at the end of his career and also having an affair with a grad student. And they're fighting a lot. They decide that they're all going to go to this ball and they take Sally with them as like a treat for her to just go.
0: Yeah, and Megan takes her shopping and and it's the mid-60s and she buys her these incredible go-go boots. And... Sally has her sparkly silver dress on and her go-go boots, and her dad sees her for the first time, and he says...
3: (gasps) Take off the makeup and the boots.
0: What? No.
3: Or you can stay home.
0: Fine. Take those off, referring to her lip gloss and her... Uh, go-go boots. I think we've both been there. He's wanting to preserve her childhood a little bit longer. She's probably like
1: 11-ish. It's still super part of our culture, which is like how a dad is to his daughter mm-hmm. and protecting their girlhood. It shows later that she
0: does wear those go-go boots again to the planetarium. Nice. So she plays the role of an 11-year-old girl. And she is the quote-unquote date of Roger that night. Who she accidentally walks in on receiving a blowjob from her step grandmother, mm-hmm. basically. And she sees how vile and horrible men are and how adults lie but she also learns to hang and cover at one point roger is sitting next to her and he's and he treats her like the adult that she deserves to be treated as and she's like go get him tiger (laughs) (laughs) something clicks for her and then she's never the same again It's like, despite the fact that, Dad, I took the go-go boots off, I rub the stain of seeing your colleague
1: being blown by your mother-in-law. Your colleague, who's kind of like an uncle figure to me, who I've known all my life, I'm walking in on him. It's traumatizing, and she comes back to the table. Everyone has those memories of the first time they walk in on someone having sex or hearing someone having sex or 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 seeing porn or seeing seeing their dad naked. Seeing their tongue naked, seeing something that sexualized an authority figure or their parents.
0: Been there. Which leads into truly the most important, I think, turning point for the characters when Sally in season six or seven... Mm-hmm. Walks in on her father having an affair with a neighbor woman. And she has also gone through an experience where she is babysitting at Don and Megan's fancy Park Avenue apartment for her two younger brothers. There's no adult present. And she says she's 14 when she calls 911. But she's really not 14. She's like 12 or 13. She's babysitting, and an elderly woman comes to the house to rob it, impersonating Don's grandmother.
1: As a viewer, you're like, well, I could see the reality of a black elderly or middle-aged woman being like, I raised raised your daddy, and that that's an, an easy thing to understand or believe at that time, because so many people were raised by...
0: Women Mades. of color
1: and maids yes, and nannies. Maids and the... The domestic laborers that actually raised but the point, generations of the people. the point for
0: Sally is that, holy shit, I don't know anything about my father. The parts that I do know have been proven to be lies. He's, right. he's admitted to me that he sometimes lies about his past.
2: I'm so embarrassed. I acted like a stupid little kid.
3: No, you didn't. And I'm sure she's fooled plenty of adults, too.
2: She said she knew you. I asked her everything I know, and she had an answer for everything. Then I realized I don't know anything about you.
3: You did everything right. Try and forget about it. Okay. Bye. Sally, I left the door open. It was my fault.
0: Her instinct tells her, like, this is a con, but she's also realizing that her dad is a con artist in this same way everything is fine, nobody is hurt, she's just mentally ill. Right, the police come. And at the end of the episode, when, when Sally is talking to her dad, and she says, I'm so sorry that I I'm such a stupid little kid. I believed what she says. It's not your fault. I'm the one that left the door open. Literally, he didn't lock the door because he hasn't been thinking about being a parent at all. Yeah. But he also left the door open metaphorically for all to be revealed, which it soon will be. Mm-hmm. Because this Park Avenue apartment is hiding a lot of secrets.
1: Simultaneously at this time, he's starting to have an affair with their neighbor, Sylvia. Sylvia another married mom. And he's really playing with fire because this woman lives in the apartment building. Building.
0: His alcoholism is in full-blown mode, soiling himself at the office. He, he, He's so, missing
1: things. right? He's, and the thing that's interesting about the door being open thing is that before this is the episode, The Suitcase, where... Yes. It's really revealed how dependent he is on alcohol, how truly unmanageable his life has become, and also him facing his past, really revealing himself to Peggy. He explains to her what his real upbringing was like in so many words. He doesn't name names, but he says his father died from getting kicked in the head by a horse, which is true. Okay. Um, Dick Whitman's father did die that way. But at the end of that episode, the only reason I bring it up besides to contextualize his drinking he vomits in that episode he gets really fucked up in front of peggy he lets peggy see it happen at the very very end she says do you want the door closed or open and open or closed open Feel like I'm a, a sophomore in college again. Like mirrors and doors are mirrors important and parts doors of Mad Men. Mirrors and <laughs>
0: albatrosses as necklaces. Oh my! <laughs> e- yes, thank you, Matt Weiner. Thank you, Matt Weiner,
1: but for also keeping
0: it straightforward for real. And from then on, nothing is quite the
1: same because he cannot hide because he's fucking the neighbor, <laughs> Sylvia. This episode shows Sylvia going to Don and asking Don to help her son, who's now been called to Vietnam to get out of it and he calls in some favors at the office and gets him a bogus like something with He makes it so this happened to somebody I know of this generation.
0: Mm-hmm. He called in a favor and you can make it so you don't get drafted. The son
1: of the woman that he's having an affair with who Sally comes home She had a crush on him. Yeah, with a friend who's like who's your your babe neighbor. His name is Mitchell and Sally's she doesn't know that Don's having an affair with Sylvia. And her friend reveals to her when they're in a taxi that she's written a note to Mitchell to tell Mitchell that Sally's in love and leaves it under his door. And Sally's like, What the fuck? Yeah. Sally like tries
0: to break in or does break in to Sylvia's house. She gets the keys, she goes in, she she lets herself in. Don and Sylvia. Doing it. Yeah, it it's is. Not, there's so nothing ambiguous upsetting. about it.
1: They're having sex and she sees them having and sex. And then
0: Sylvia and Don see her seeing them, and it is as uncomfortable as you think. It's horrifying. And then everybody tries to pretend it didn't happen because wouldn't you know it? Don and Megan and Sally and her friend are having like a family dinner just hours later. Right. So, And Sylvia's husband and Sylvia's son come over to thank Don for his calling in that favor. You've saved our family. And after they leave, Sally stands up and screams at Don.
2: You make me sick.
3: Sally, come back here.
0: And she runs to her room with no explanation, and Don runs after her, and she locks him out, and he is behind the door as she is behind the
3: door. Sally. Open the door.
2: No. You don't get to talk to me anymore.
3: Sally. Sally, open the door. I need to talk to you. I know you think you saw something. I was comforting Mrs. Rosen. She was very upset. It's very complicated. Sally, can you hear me? Yes. Did you hear what I said?
0: Okay. It's an incredibly sad and touching scene that triggers you because you did find your father having an affair
1: in your house. I did. What triggers me specifically is that, what triggers me specifically is going to be my mantra of 2020. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I remember crying when it aired. Yeah. And it's still, it's a raw wound and I really relate to it because my sister and I as teenagers discovered that my father was having an affair and... Some of the language that Don uses in that scene is identical to things that my father said to me, including I know you think you saw something, mm. but I was comforting this woman. I was comforting I was Mrs. comforting her with my yeah. check. <laughs> yeah. We didn't walk into any brazen It wasn't coitus. as dramatic as that. It wasn't quite as, but it was a left open email on a family computer in the dawn of the internet. And he had left open some exchanges with a woman that he was having an affair with who was a coworker of his who we knew. So it was sort of similar in that like the in the Sylvia Don dynamic, this was someone that my mother knew her. <gasps> her husband and her would come over for dinner. Really? She was really close with my dad, quote unquote. <laughs> Did your
0: mother know?
1: No. She didn't know. She found out by my father reading my diary. Your
0: diary. Which was
1: very upsetting and I think probably did the most damage to our relationship out of any other acts. I had started journaling and I was writing about, as one does, even Don Draper journals on Mad Men. I was writing about being so upset that we knew that he was having an affair and he knew that my sister and I were really on to him. He could sense it. We wanted nothing to do with him and it's we were acting how Sally starts acting after she has this discovery with sylvia her i mean i was 13. same with sally like what's the worst age a girl could be to discover her
0: father's yeah, cheating on her mother mitzvah like, so you got your period found out your dad was a liar totally
1: fucking his friend from and work. then their marriage exploded he came into my room one day and found me writing in my diary and I screamed at him like a classic, like get out, get out of here And in that instance it didn't even actually have anything to do with the affair. It was that we had to have a swim party. Mm-hmm. Thanks, 8th grade teachers from Madison Number 1 Elementary School, 1997, Phoenix, <laughs> thinking, how do we celebrate our graduating class? We have a swim party in middle school when <laughs> girls and boys, but girls' bodies, you either have like a full D cup or you're like... like
5: Just flat as
1: a board. It's like you can either pass as like 35 or 8. So really hating my body and I think we had just gone to try on bathing suits for the party and was having a little meltdown. But it was this weird moment where he walked into my room and I screamed at him to leave and he saw me writing in the diary and I made a mental note to maybe change up my hiding spots for it. Didn't you bury your journal in the yard? What do you do when you're 14 and your whole world is dictated by music videos and soap opera scenes? Mm -hmm. You go outside in your backyard and you bury that diary. I mean, how metaphorical. Like, then as an adult, I learned how to bury my feelings. He walked into my room, and he saw the diary, and then I kind of forgot about it. And then the next day, my sister and I were out. My sister had her license. Both my parents were very generous about letting us (laughs) drive their cars. We had gone to a record store, and the deal was that, yes, we could borrow his car, but that we needed to check in. And we called, and he said, I need you to come home right now, and I need you to tell your sister that I love her a lot. He told my sister that, and my sister dictated this back to me, and and I said to her, he read my diary. (gasps) I just knew. We just both knew what we were walking into, and he knew. I mean, in a way, it's still this weird. Then we went home. He had it out. It was very a guest who's on this season, Jake Jackson. His mother has his porn sitting out to confront him in this very dramatic way. We came home, and my father had my diary (gasps) sitting out. We had this sort of family meeting which with my mother, which family meetings were things that happened on TV. Shows if we discuss something as a family, it happened naturally at the dinner table or whatever. But it was this very sort of like we're having a meeting moment, and he was very similar to Don and. Sally, in that moment of, I think you're confused, you found some emails where I was telling my friend who was feeling not so good about herself that she's attractive. Was (laughs) your
0: mother learning this all for the first time? Yes. And
1: I used to be really upset about how it was handled, which was that basically my mother said, okay, sounds good. This didn't happen. Did your mother really believe him? I think she wanted to. You know, it's difficult, if my mother was here right now, she would say, I just couldn't face what was happening. I just couldn't accept to. it. And it's a lot. And I Take wanted in. to believe him. And and why the show resonates with me so much is because it his alcoholism was blossoming at the time and it was wrapped together. Yeah. So it but
0: it to must have it. spearheaded the divorce, the event divorce. He is stayed in fair. the house
1: for another year. That was the longest year of my life. As a teen, it was, it just was awful. I didn't want to be in the house. After the scene where Don talks to Sally through the door that is so fucking heartbreaking, where in so many words he you you misunderstood this connection I have.
0: Gaslighting. With, yes,
1: I exactly. And she says, "Okay." And she's disgusted because it has to do with sex. And the next episode, she goes to boarding school suddenly out of nowhere. She, and in season seven, the final
0: season of the show. Sally in episode two which is called a day's work she goes to Don's office and finds out that he is not there because he has been given a forced leave of absence for quote unquote shitting the bed during the Hershey meeting
3: (laughs) you shit the bed in there I don't care is any of that true
0: Yes. He hemorrhaged his childhood. That's right. Dick Whitman memories of his childhood, its abuse and neglect, to the Hershey's Inc. CEO and the marketing team. <laughs> yeah. had the Hershey squirts. He had a Hershey squirt where he he has a breakdown and he tells the truth.
3: I'm sorry. I have to say this. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. What? I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. I read about Milton Hershey and his school in Coronet magazine or some other (laughs) crap the girls left by the toilet. And I read that some orphans had a different life there. I could picture it. I dreamt of it, of being wanted. Because the woman who was forced to raise me would look at me every day like she hoped I would disappear. Closest I got to feeling wanted was from a girl who made me go through her John's pockets while they screwed. If I collected more than a dollar, she'd buy me a Hershey bar. And I would eat it alone in my room with the great ceremony, feeling like a normal kid. It said sweet on the back was the only sweet thing in my life.
0: He's He has to go on a forced sabbatical. And so he's been lying low and his assistant, Dawn, has been keeping up appearances for him. But he does not realize that Sally has gone to the office to visit him, discovered that he's no longer there. So she calls him on it and at first he tries to lie. And she's just like... They go for an infamous driving scene.
3: So I find your story a little suspicious?
2: My story? There's some man in your office.
3: We're not talking about me.
2: Did you lose your job?
3: Why were you in the city? I want to know this minute.
2: I don't have to tell you anything.
3: Just stop the car. I'm talking to you.
2: You're yelling at me.
3: Why would you just let me lie to you like that?
2: Because it's more embarrassing for me to catch you in a lie than it is for you to be lying.
3: So you just laid and wait, like your mother.
2: Do you know how hard it was for me to go to your apartment? I could have run into that woman. I could be in the elevator. She could get in. And I'll have to stand there, smiling, wanting to vomit while I smell her hairspray.
1: It's this really uncomfortable, sad scene where she's talking to him about lying and his penchant for lying. And she calls him out. I mean, Betty around the time that they get divorced, she starts realizing what's happening with Don's infidelity. She draws a line in the sand and she leaves him. She ultimately is the one that ends their relationship. But Sally reads Don in the car kind of in a way that you never get from Betty. Betty definitely has moments with him where she explodes in anger, but hearing it mirrored in Sally is really powerful because she's only 14. Happy Valentine's Day. I love you. It's this moment that I think you know as the, like, viewer that Sally's really grown up. Sally fucking gets it. And she sees how her dad is limited and fucked up. And
0: the episode ends with her saying, after all of this confrontation, Happy Valentine's Day. I love you. We can't show video clearly, but... The look on his face is so wounded and accepted at the same
1: time. He's stricken. I think he's been wanting to hear "I love you" from her or anyone. He is at sea. I think they both realize that she's in charge of the relationship, at least at that moment. And
0: he's forgotten. that he... it's Valentine's Day at all. And also
1: her screaming at him in the car about smelling her hairspray and wanting to vomit, repulsed by him. But the episode before this, Sally starts acting out, and Don is called in the middle of the night to go pick her up because she's suspended I just got off the phone with Miss Porters Sally's been suspended
3: What did she do?
2: She bought beer using the name Beth Francis with a false ID she'd made
3: Kids do things, Betty At least they didn't kick her out
2: Henry's already in Albany Supposed to join him tomorrow I know you're picking the boys up Thanksgiving Day but could you go get her tomorrow? I don't want to have this conversation with my mother-in-law
3: I can't, Betty. I have a big meeting.
2: She was drunk, and she got other girls drunk. I've done everything I can think to do, everything my own mother did. The good is not beating the bad. She obviously needs more than I can give her.
3: Bertie, this isn't your fault.
1: She's from a broken home. I think it's a really poignant moment because it's also like she's saying out loud what he's scared of too, which is our children will inherit the bad. I'm the bad. Betty's the good, which of course is questionable on the entire series because no one is the good and the bad. And like, that's the whole point of the show is that people are complicated. I think he kind of listens to her in that moment, worried that she might be right. And he goes and he gets Sally. And then It ends with this episode where he confesses to these ad executives and the entire room is just reeling with what the fuck did you... One, this is the first time Roger and Co. are hearing this information. Two, that he's revealing it in front of these extremely important clients. It ends with him taking his kids
0: back to his childhood home and saying, this is where I grew up and it's kind of a ghetto in rural Pennsylvania. This is a bad neighborhood.
1: Come on.
3: This is where I grew up.
1: It's It's a dilapidated Victorian house that's in a quote, as Bobby says, bad neighborhood. It's clearly a poor neighborhood. And Bobby and Jean are kind of just like, what? Question mark. The Sally and, and Don exchange. A knowing look
0: of... Acceptance that this is the new truth And Mm -hmm. this is the new reality We don't see a ton of Sally And Don together Until the very last episode Which we should talk about Mm -hmm. Of the entire series The major scene in that episode Is when Sally calls Don From boarding school He's on a walkabout Where he's driving cross country While he's on sabbatical To go to a self-improvement Goop lab-esque
1: workshop It's it's suggested. that It's the Esalen Baths outside of Monterey, California. So like super hippy-dippy. It's
0: 1969. There's a reference to Charles Manson being in the area. There's yoga. There's group therapy. Sally calls him with some bad news and he has to listen to her. He's not in control of this conversation. He is the child. She is the grown-up. She says, I have news, mom is dying, Mm -hmm. your ex-wife Betty, the mother of your three children, has six months to live. It's on Sally to tell her father, you are not going to have custody of us. It's gonna be- Betty's brother." brother. And Don is stricken and calls his ex-wife i'm their father i need to have custody of them and betty says but i want to keep things consistent while i'm gone and you not
2: being here as part of that francis residence i have a person-to-person call for betty francis from donald draper this is she i'll accept hello don don't you want the boys
3: no you know i talked to sally don't you
2: Yes, of course.
3: I'm coming home.
2: You are definitely not.
3: I want to be there. The kids need me.
2: I don't want to upset them. It's my business. Didn't even want her to know. No one could keep their mouth shut.
3: I don't want you to worry about them. They're going to come live with me. You don't even have to ask.
2: I wasn't going to. Please don't let your pride interfere with my wishes.
3: I'm their father.
2: What they really need is a woman in their life. A regular family. Living with my brother and Judy's in their best interests.
3: You don't have the right to decide.
2: What am I supposed to do? This way you see them exactly as much as you do now. On weekends and... Oh wait, Don. When was the last time you saw them?
3: (sighs) Betty, I, I didn't know.
2: Don, honey, I... I appreciate your intentions, I really do. But I'm not going to waste the rest of my time arguing about this. I want to keep things as normal as possible. And you not being here is part of that. Birdie. I know. I have to go.
3: I'll talk to you soon.
0: Okay. Once there's no more mom, there's no more dad. She says they need a woman in their life. And there's no more Megan because now they're on their way to divorce.
1: Mm-hmm. And Megan was
0: never really a mother figure. She was just... She was more of a cool
1: a friend.
0: secretary.
1: You not being here as part of that is so sad. He calls Peggy back at the agency because he's
0: stricken with the idea that there's never any closure. He tries to reconcile within a group therapy environment that you cannot run away from your past Mm -hmm. and the truth of who you are. His whole abiding theme is that if you put enough distance between yourself physically and the past and your memory, if you bury it, You can run away. Mm -hmm. You can get away with it. It will shock you how much this didn't happen. (laughs) As he says in earlier seasons. A speech he gives to Peggy. He calls Peggy to apologize for his absence emotionally, physically, to say goodbye. Look, I know you get sick of things and you run, but you can come home. Where? McCann will take you back in a second.
3: Apparently it's happened before. Don't you want to work on Coke? I can't. I can't get out of here. Don, come home. You messed everything up. I'm not the man you think I am.
2: Don, listen to me. What did you ever do that was so
5: bad?
3: I broke all my vows. I scandalized my child. Another man's name and made nothing of it.
5: That's not true.
3: I only call because I realized I never said goodbye to you.
1: Ugh, I know. But it ends with Don meditating at Esalen. Or an Esalen-esque place on a
0: cliff. And they project forward a few months in time into 1970 with a real commercial for Coca-Cola.
1: And Coca-Cola, by the way, is a current client of Sterling Draper Draper, Cooper Price. The implication being
0: that Don turns his self-actualization into capitalist gold by taking the scene of his own breakdown and then learning to come full circle for empathy with himself, connecting with his fellow men and women, whether they be white, black, black, Brown, yellow. Right, this this is the the
1: vibe of the
0: commercial. The 70s. So you you definitely get the message that he is going to survive at least this year, commodify this experience and move on. Enlightenment via capitalism. The whole self-care movement. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Don finds transcendence through advertising. Right. With the Coke It's fascinating that 50 years after the I'd like to teach the world to sing woke Coke ad of 1970, we can easily imagine a white middle-aged, twice-divorced father of three going to take a woke retreat and coming back with 2017's doomed Pepsi ad instead, the one starring Kendall Jenner which was corporate America trying and failing to depoliticize Black Lives Matter protests even three years ago. And now, three years on, we are seeing what happens when corporations are tasked with this moral reckoning of not just reflecting a more inclusive world in their ads, but in their actual corporate ranks.
1: Really, you see a lot of companies exploiting mm. The wokeification, the girlbossification of feminism, the wokeification of not being homophobic or misogynistic or racist—you see it everywhere. You see it with Listerine having a float in the Pride Parade, down to all of the ways that we saw companies squirm and attempt to express their remorse and solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that was graceless because it's not real. I feel like Don's Coke commercial is a good first example of using true social justice to be the gasoline in the tank of whatever it is you're selling, whether it's an ad or a campaign of some sort. But I don't think that things like the Pepsi, Kendall Jenner commercial would have ever seen the light of day if you had more diversity and more representation at an executive level level and but at the bottom line is there's still a bottom line they're still having to make money off of products and using social justice to fuel that is just always going to ring hollow and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how we move forward culturally as consumers after 2020.
0: It's also important to talk about creator, showrunner, writer, Matthew Weiner. In 2017, Matt Weiner is incredibly accused of sexual harassment in the Mad Men Writer's Room by Kater Gordon, who was a young protege. And she starts out as a writer's assistant in the room and then works her way up to writing the episode that ends up winning an Emmy for best screenplay.
5: Um, only one of us is allowed to speak so I'm going to speak for both of us.
0: And I'm gonna hold it.
5: <laughs> um, uh, we would like to thank our parents and our families. Uh, uh, Kater would like to thank her fiance Sileo and the lady who gave her a kidney. <laughs> And I would like to thank my wife, Linda, who is uh, my critic and my advisor and my muse. I would like to thank my kids, uh, Martin, Charlie, Arlo, and Alice. I hope someone figured out how to take this. And um, I just wanted to say uh, to the people, uh, we we work with these people at AMC and Lionsgate, and I may be the only person in this room on some level who has complete creative freedom. And I have to thank them for that, because that's why the show is the way it is. We have an amazing cast, we have an amazing crew, and um, when you get something like this, it makes writing look fun, but it's not. (laughs) Um, And just one last thing about writers, and for anybody out there, I grew up watching this show, and I loved seeing the writers on the show, and I just want to say, if you're out there, just hang in there and remember that when you look down the row at that guy at Starbucks with the computer, it's probably one of us.
0: You can see that Matt Weiner will not let this writer actually accept the award. He does all the talking, and then he rewards her for this Emmy-winning episode by firing her and a slew of other writers before the next season. And she comes out in 2017 at the height of the Time's Up movement of anti-sexual harassment and discrimination in the Hollywood workplace to say, Matt Weiner sexually harassed me That's why I left and that's why I'm no longer working as a writer in Hollywood. And in fact, I've started a nonprofit organization for people who've been sexually harassed in the workplace. Cater Gordon has said to people who perhaps don't believe her side of the story that I think the claim of sexual harassment is that they were in the writer's room. And he says something to the effect of, you owe it to me to let me see you naked. What? Now that we've been through this experience together. It's worth noting that the Mad Men writers room was reportedly somewhat diverse by TV standards. Of a staff of 10 to 12 writers every year, five of them were always women, which is extremely rare. There's usually one or zero women in the room. The writers ranged in age from their 20s to their 80s. They always tried to have somebody who was alive during the 60s and worked in advertising there as a consultant, and the writers were described as white and Asian. I thought it was interesting that Weiner's co-executive producer and head writer, Semi Chalice, gave an interview where she discussed how the writer's room worked. It's all about Matt Weiner, but he did encourage his writers to draw from their own experiences, and then they would bring those ideas or pages to him, and he would basically say yay or nay. Here's the quote from the Cornell Daily Sun. In the following days, writers would pitch their ideas directly to Weiner, who would sometimes return a few days later and pitch the very same ideas he had previously dismissed. How many times have we been there in our careers? So what does he do post Mad Men? He writes a novel, and it is called Heather the Totality. Mm. Coincidentally, the plot is a father murders a man he suspects wants to rape his daughter, which a reviewer at Vox, Constance Grady, calls bad. (laughs) It's a bad novel. Mm -hmm. Quote, incapable of imagining her as anything besides an object upon whom men might prove their masculinity matt weiner said about his own novel the story comes from me witnessing a young girl walking into a building and a construction worker seeing and ogling her he says and me thinking what if her dad had seen that constance grady at vox says it's worth considering that weiner writes a lot about men who treat women as prostitutes Don has a Madonna whore complex, which is a running theme in the series, and his alleged statement to Gordon that you owe it to me to let me see you naked would suggest that a belief that women's beauty, or more directly, women's bodies, are a currency, and that after having bought a woman's favor with professional mentorship, he is owed access to her body. To which I say, writer, heal thyself. (laughs) Matt Weiner has has mommy issues, daddy issues and all the issues that fallible men have. And it's very interesting as Cater Gordon would say, do you really think that the mind that conceived of Pete Campbell and Don Draper and Roger Sterling isn't capable of objectifying women in the same way?
1: It's a really good question. Mad Men also did a great job in the context of the Emmy speech where he wouldn't let Cater Gordon say anything of... Showing women as rich characters, the the women that were in the world of Mad Men were white, middle class, upper class, rich, wealthy women. But the series made it a point to show the interior lives of women being complicated. And the
0: interior lives of women being complicated sixty years ago. Sixty years ago.
1: But even <laughs> even saying that out loud, I'm like, did he though? Like for a show that's about men and advertising executive men in the 60s, I wonder if the reason why the female characters were so well done was not because of Matthew Weiner, but because of the women helping him write the show. A to the fucking men sister. And one wonders if the reason why when he finally branched out on his own and didn't have a team of writers who were either women or queer or people who weren't writing from the perspective of a white straight man that he came back with a completely bizarrely tone-deaf novel about a father wanting to avenge the rape of his daughter Um,
0: by a low-class construction worker but the novel didn't sell so we're not here to talk about failed books (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> boom, Especially boom, boom. Mine.
1: And what happened afterwards? What, hap- he what happened? He got divorced
0: in- after thirty years of marriage. He's a father himself. The Romanovs. Not a strong presence next, on Amazon. Next- and we'll see what he does next. But whatever he does next, we thank him for his dysfunction and- for giving us madmen. For giving so many actors the roles of a lifetime. I think the ironic through line is that Don is a man struggling to face himself. And what we've heard from some of the writers is that Matt Weiner is a man who can't see himself in the mirror, which is the definition of a narcissist, the ultimate example of a powerful man unwilling to share his seat at the table.
1: So the show has been off the air for five years The show ends in 1970. That means 50 years have gone by since the world of Mad Men ended. And yet we see such little progress in how we live as a society now. I mean, we're still seeing brands fumbling with how to handle Black Lives Matter, with how to handle COVID. It's been fascinatingly terrible corporate structures and how totally fucked up they are, how whitewashed they are or just white led they are and how misogynistic they continue to be. And we're, we're seeing that really unfold with companies being called out for still having a huge glass ceiling over women and being really not that diverse. Hollywood is notably sexist and racist as well. But what we're going to need to do to actually have any sort of true reckoning in corporate America, really, what the work of allyship is and fighting this bullshit, is using your power to amplify the voices of people who aren't heard otherwise. So it's going to require a lot of people in power to open the fucking door and then shut up and get out of the way, so that other people who haven't gotten to tell their stories, who haven't gotten to sh- share their experiences in the world that are so real, it will shock you how much they did happen, can tell them.
0: I'd like like to buy the world a Coke Coke. and furnish it with love. Mm -hmm. Grow apple trees and and honeybees and and so white turtledoves.
4: Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at T-M-A-Y-F podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Betsy Lerner, Ann Thompson, Paige
3: Orvis and Helen Belgum.